Welcome to The Math of Youth, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 101st episode, I'll be talking to Matt Fisher, musician and co-host of the Smark of the Beast podcast, about straight-edge hardcore and punk. Along the way, we discuss becoming a musical scuba diver in the home of meth and skee-ball, what to do when your imaginary friend writes you the perfect album about wrestling, and the shows made powerful by the experience of tasting your own blood. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Yeah, uh, so uh, my name's Matt. I am the co-host with another Matt of a podcast called Smark of the Beast. We're sort of on an off-season right now. Uh, we kind of wrapped up our first couple of years and taken the summer off so I can deal with kids and work. But it's a podcast where we rank everything to do with the king of sports, professional wrestling, a shared love of you and I, I know. Mm-hmm. And I am a father of two. I am an erstwhile musician slash... I, I say musician because it sounds weird to say punk rocker because that <laughs> sounds very self-aggrandizing. But at the same time, it feels wrong to say that I'm a musician because I can't really play my instruments much from years of being in punk bands. <laughs> and I'm also the creative director at a church here in Richmond, Virginia, where me and my family live. Cool. I think that's pretty much it. It's funny because... It's rare with a podcast that I have to go that I, I like as I've recommended lots of people to go and listen to Smark of the Beast as it's a great kind mm-hmm. of because you are ranking everything in the King of Sports professional wrestling. It is not limited to any one particular era. Like you'll find a lot of podcasts will be like depending on a person who's making the podcast particular experience. It will either be lots of back in the day, it will be lots of attitude era, or it'll be lots of extremely current stuff. Whereas because Smark of the Beast is covering everything. It means that you'll dip in and out of other federations than WWE. You'll dip in and out of different eras. I know Matt is very attached to WCW, and you're very attached to Sami Zayn's hat. Yes, very attached to Sami Zayn and his hat and his lovely Longsdale jacket. Of course, now it's a hoodie with patches because he's bad. We know that. (laughs) We know that bad underground types wear hoodies with patches sewn to them which is true i found that to be true in my life so i do love sammy i did have to describe sammy's and kevin owens to a friend as and i they came out with it like you know the surly bear and the sky shitbird which is pretty much what they are now <laughs> totally 100 percent true <laughs> so yeah i've recommended spark of the beast a lot although i have had to this is going to sound callous i've had to warn people it's like just stick in past the punch you in the face opening theme because <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> oh man i know i'd you know i figured it's my you know it was like kind of 
my first chance to write a jingle for a show that I was doing because I'd written some jingles and stuff for Matt Wilson's other podcast, War Rocket Ajax. And that's right, you're this next situation. So that's right, and <clears throat> which is also a hardcore song, I'll admit. But <laughs> I just figured, like, if somebody's signing on to something called Smark of the Beast, which is an obvious allusion to Mark of the Beast, which is mm-hmm. a, you know uh, Iron Maiden Iron slash Maiden, Satan yeah. reference. Um, you know, I figured they'd be on board for a little thrash on the front end but as someone who likes to ruffle feathers i'm glad that you have to preface your recommendations <laughs> with the abrasive uh, you know um song sort of warning and what's funny is that having gotten to know both of the mets i know that you're both pretty gentle guys and are both pretty cool with stuff so it's like i do love that you do match the energy coming out of the song but then it's like something comes up like Sami Zayn's hat or how Matt feels about Ric Flair or something. And just you hear the love in your voice come out and it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> these guys. Yeah, it's not all vitriol. That's like that's sort of a staple, though, of, of like hardcore dudes, right? Like if mm-hmm. you think of Henry Rollins or Ian Mackay or these guys as they act tough. But then, mm-hmm. you know, you hear them in interviews and they're just like little softy babies. <laughs> Absolutely. So initially when I invited you on the show, it was actually to talk about these topics, but I want to talk about you a little bit first. So why don't you tell me where you grew up? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, which is a very interesting place to grow up for those who are not from the state. If you're from the states, probably anywhere in the states, this is Daytona Beach is a thing that elicits a reaction. It's like, I don't even know how to describe it. It it is always, if, if it comes up in movies, it's always the butt of a joke. The movie Spring Breakers was entirely centered around people going to Spring Break in Daytona Beach. The movie Dirty Grandpa was entirely (laughs) about Robert De Niro doing drugs as a grandpa in Daytona Beach, Florida. So that's where I grew up. It is also where famed serial killer Eileen Warnos committed her crimes as portrayed in the movie Monster, which I believe Charlize Theron won an Oscar for or was I think nominated. So too, yeah. I think she won it. Yeah. So, as you know, all of the pop culture references for Daytona Beach are as you would expect. And that's what it's like to grow up there. So, yeah, I grew up there. It was a very busy town because of the tourism and the beach, but not a very large town. So kind of has a small town feel if a small town had a real meth problem and also lots of ski ball. <laughs> and so grew up there and uh, yeah, kind of got involved with punk rock. You know, I, I was I'm 35 now. So I was the age where I heard Green Day's Dookie and Offspring Smash when I was in like third grade. So it was really the first like... <laughs> you know, music that I remember really being attracted to, but started sort of hanging out with skaters and punk and underground types when I was in probably seventh or eighth grade. At that time, the scene there was small and it's still, it might not even exist anymore. I don't know, but it's always been sort of a small music scene. And the punk and hardcore types and and even ska, like the kids who liked Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and stuff, it was, they were all primarily for whatever reason, straight edge. And so I was always really attracted to that, and that's kind of why I started hanging out with them in the first place, because I knew I didn't want to, as the lyrics to the song Straight Edge go, didn't want to drink, didn't want to smoke, didn't want to fuck. So I hung out with those kids and kind of started playing bands and setting up shows, and that sort of led me to touring and meeting new people from different places, and eventually a band that I was in 
was put on a tour with a band from Richmond. While we were on tour with that band, the singer was like, ugh, my roommate moved out suddenly. I badly need a roommate. And I thought, well, I badly need to get out of Daytona Beach, Florida, so I'll move in with you. (laughs) Um, And that's how I ended up in Richmond and met my wife and settled down and had a couple of offspring of our own. And yeah, I think that's the the shortest version. (laughs) So in this setting, surrounded by meth and skee-ball, as you so claim. <laughs> what sort of kid were you? Like, what was the situation leading into, you know, taking up with this scene? I was a, I think I started off as a very anxious kid. I'm still a very anxious person. So I struggle with like anxiety, depression, good proof that I'm chemically anxious <laughs> is <laughs> that I was just always that way from a very young age. And I think that kind of led me into being thoughtful. You know, being anxious makes you want to try to ease that anxiety by knowing more, by learning and by hoping that you can control your environment through you know, knowledge. And so I think anxiety and a thirst for knowledge made me a very interesting like middle schooler because I was curious about everything, but also keenly aware that things weren't right and that things needed to change. So when I started hearing bands like Propagandi, Minor Threat, and uh, Rage Against the Machine and started hearing these big political words and ideas that I didn't quite understand and that at the time I didn't really have the internet to research... I just kind of knew like this is the thing like maybe this is why I'm so anxious is because everything's so messed up out there. So yeah, it's kind of like anxiety sort of snowballed into curiosity and then ultimately just like a need to figure everything out. My therapist always says that there's some people who are scuba divers and some people who are snorkelers. So you kind of snorkel at the top and see everything. And then scuba divers like see something and they dive deep for it. That's I'm a scuba diver. I always (laughs) want to like know more about everything. And in a pre-internet world, punk rock really lent itself to that because you couldn't just Google things. You like heard a band and then you found out that the singer from that band played guitar in another band. And then you went and got that band's record. And then you found out that those guys are in a crew and that crew's got beef with this other crew. So then you find out who the bands are associated with that crew. And it was just like, it was like comic books, honestly. That's <laughs> it's like crossover, you know, universe superhero comics. It's just, there's always something more to learn and dive into and That's why I think you see a lot of like, you know, punky types who also are into wrestling and comics because it's all kind of tied in. Yeah, it's a very similar vibe. I mean, just the way you've described it, it makes perfect sense. And yeah, this idea where, I mean, because I too started off with those exact same two albums. I started off with Green Day's Dookie and Offspring Smash. Of course, with me, it was my friend Andrew in seventh grade who Mm -hmm. was a year older than me and so therefore knew everything. Right. (laughs) As friends who are older do. And he played that and Nirvana from the Muddy Banks of the Wishka. And I remember like oh, listening man. to that. So I got from the Muddy Banks of the Wichita from the library, the local library. Oh man. And Bless. it was absolutely <laughs> dude. His cover of Where Did You Sleep Last Night? I was just oh, like, he's Oh, he's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I thought I was in pain, <laughs> but now I know <laughs> what real pain is. Yeah, and it's just like you're right, because having the limited sources and not having the entirety of the internet in front of you, you would glom to whatever you were given and just lock into that thing. And, you know, look for any small bit of information. I was trying to explain to someone the other day, and this, I believe, I understand this story. It makes me sound like the oldest, like I should be pushing out my glasses and adjusting my sweater vest and carpet slippers. But (laughs) it was one of those situations where there was a small record store in Fredericton, New Brunswick, that didn't have any posters up, didn't have any, like, proper signs or anything, would just, like, tape up a board where stuff was spray painted. Like, I think they rented the space once a month and it was just you'd turn up and look through these records of people you'd never heard of and there was a bootleg of metallica by four cellos by apocalyptica Mm. 
that I had until then only ever heard tell of, not actually seen in the flesh. And I couldn't afford it because it was $40. Of course, now I look and I'm like, oh, right. Apocalyptica has made an entire career out of covering metal bands. That's cool. Mm -hmm, Makes complete sense. But just having this whispered thing and then seeing it in front of me as, oh, it's this cassette tape with just a plain white sleeve that someone has written on in ballpoint pen saying Metallica by four cellos. And it's just like, oh, wow, this thing. So when you were looking into this stuff, what sort of things were grabbing your attention? I know you were saying you were listening to, you know, stuff like Minor Threat and Propagandi, but what was it that was just like getting its hooked into you? I think... You know, it's funny. So most people who are into any sort of counterculture have this very, you know, in a pre-internet age, have some version of the same story, right? It's like retelling a, a, you know, it's like when you retell an origin story of Spider-Man or whoever, you know, like a rewrite. It's always some version of the same. Like there was the shop and it was weird and different than the other shops. And I would just go in there and buy stuff, you know. My version of that is there was a little record store called Off the Record in Ormond Beach, which was right next to Daytona Beach. And the guy who ran it was actually a girl that we went to school with's dad. And she was like very, (laughs) she was very teeny bopper, lip gloss, hanging out at the mall. She was so embarrassed that her dad like ran this record store. And it was hilarious because like he was just like a music guy. He was kind of a high fidelity type, you know, like he just loved music, all sorts of music. And as a result of that, knew a lot about punk rock and heavy metal and ska. And he was hilarious because he was this older dude, you know, that was like our classmate's dad with this thick Southern accent. So you'd go in and, you know, you hear, okay, so you hear Green Day, right? So you go in, hey, Mike, you know, do you have a copy of Dookie? Oh, yeah, man, yeah, I got a copy of Dookie. Hey, you know, they're from Berkeley. You know who else is from Berkeley is Operation Ivy. You ever heard them? You know, and it was just that all the time, forever. Every time you went in there, he was just like, oh, you like that? Oh, man, you should check out. And that was how we learned about everything. And so I think that it was definitely Dookie that I think for, I was just, I heard Welcome to Paradise. And the year that that song came out, I was in third grade, I think third or fourth grade. We had just found out that my older brother, who's about 10 years older than I was, was addicted to heroin. So he went to rehab for heroin. And so Welcome to Paradise was just like, in my head, you know, this is like my brother. He leaves home. He's writing home to his mom. All these terrible things have happened. And I was just like... You know, when something like that happens, and luckily my parents had the foresight to be honest instead of try to hide it, you know. And so I'm in these, like, classes at school talking about drug prevention because it's like the Tipper Gore dare, you know, era. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, now at home there's this drug stuff going on. And so hearing Welcome to Paradise, I was just like, oh, these two things are connected. Like, okay, this is the thing that connects all of these weird shattered pieces of, you know, what I had perceived as a perfect, you know, sort of American family. My parents were still married. My little sister and I got along. I did well in school. And then this thing happened with my older brother. And I heard that song at the same time. So it was just like, it was like, this is it. This is the thing. But, you know, my parents didn't want me listening to records with fuck on it or whatever. (laughs) So I kind of had to shelve it because I didn't have a way to sneak around it. I listened to whatever for a couple of years. And then when I got into middle school and we found this record store and it was right next door to my friend's house, we would go spend the night at Sean Boots house and walk over to the record store in the morning. And that was pretty much it for me. Again, started with Green Day. I think the next thing was probably Rancid and then Rancid led to Operation Ivy. 
And then Operation Ivy was it for me. That was like, it's hardcore, it's ska, it's punk, and those are the three things that I still really like. (laughs) (laughs) It was learning more about real ska, and I say real ska, like ska from the 60s, you know. It was learning, like, you know, the singer of Operation Ivy had that really, really hardcore, screamy voice, so I wanted to hear more of that, so I started getting into your Bad Brains and Minor Threat, and which led into stuff like more metal, like Hatebreed and Slayer. And then, you know, there was, of course, the punk of it, that continued me down that sort of fat records no effects rancid pennywise so yeah that was that was the defining i think it was green data to rancid to operation ivy and then it was all that's all she wrote and by then you were hooked i was hooked yeah and again you know because i'm naturally sort of a scuba diver i'm not like oh this band is good i'll listen to this band i'm like where did this band get this i want to know more and more and more and then all of a sudden i'm like reading and look reading about and looking for trojan era ska records from 1968 (laughs) and then reading about jamaican immigration to england and how that affected the two-tone thing in the 70s and just ah i love it's just it's nerdy like i said no different than comics or wrestling (laughs) oh yeah and something i've discussed in the show a lot where it doesn't matter your topic you know nerdy tendencies are just about everywhere i mean i talked about that with nathaniel hubbard with hub from talking about you know he was obsessed with basketball when he was a teenager but he also loved like you know classic comics and things like that so he's like it's the same kind of thing you know pouring over stats and knowing a random person's batting average is the same as knowing when so and so debuted in what comic and what their powers were i mean it's this it's the same part of your brain it's just different topic yeah i can remember really realizing that in high school because i'm sure high school is still very hard now but i think i think how old are you lucas I'm 37. Yeah, so you and I, I think, were sort of part of the last generation of, like, breakfast club dynamic in high school, where, like, the <laughs> yeah. jocks, you know, the jocks sit here, and the stoners sit here, and the metalheads sit there, and I can just remember jock kids, like, making fun of me for whatever, like, in comic books, or, like, in punk rock, or whatever, and I was just like, dude, you know this guy's batting average, and, like, where he comes from, and what his, like, stats were in college? Like, you're the nerd. Like, I'm never gonna bump into Wolverine and geek out on him. He's not a real person. You, you If you ever bump into <laughs> this dude you're gonna become like a little fanboy <laughs> it's like who's the nerd here i was gonna say you say that but now you could actually bump it just the person who plays wolverine if he happens to be in town that's true i would be yeah. pretty stoked to meet hugh jackman i also like his musical numbers <laughs> there you go the thing you learn about hugh jackman he's extremely tall really yeah he's a big dude but yeah you're from the land you're you're currently in the land of hugh jackman aren't you Yes, I am. And what's funny is that because my partner, Kimiko, works in TV, she previously worked for Fremantle and now she's with another company. And so she works in the production. And what you find about a lot of these Australian actors who are big now is a lot of them started out on local shows like Neighbors or Home and Away or like soap opera stuff. Right. So, yeah, someone will mention the Hemsworth and she'll be like, oh, those goons. (laughs) And they were just a bunch of kind of surfer goofballs that were, you know, a pack of brothers who all acted and were all kind of just normal people and like she'll see someone mention that and she'll be kind of not even be blasé or because she she loves the movies now but it's just like oh yeah that guy and currently they're shooting shang chi here in the same studio complex where she works and she is making plans to you know potentially bump into aquafina at the coffee shop and be like oh hey i know what you're doing That's so funny. And it, it makes her sound cooler than she is because they are complex plants with charts. So right. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, 
that's the weirdest thing about I was talking to somebody the other day about the torch of celebrity like once somebody hands you that torch you can never put it out or get rid of it it's always hanging around but it's also weird because people knew you before I have that with some bands where you know you're hanging around going to shows long enough eventually some of the bands that you hang out with are going to go somewhere Mm. and sometimes they become fallout boy and then (laughs) you just see these dudes that you used to hang out with on tv all the time but in your head you're just like weird this is so weird (laughs) it's that guy and then it's like yeah i mean i remember this is a very of its time story but i remember like shelving magazines at a borders in like 2009 or 2008 and finding an interview with green day and having them Mm -hmm. talk about i think it was what was it woodstock 94 where it's like they were one of dozens of bands yeah and because the album had hit just before the tour the festival were suddenly like oh well we're bumping up your spot we're treating you different and hey do you want a limo to take you to the show and they were one baffled and two terrified because they were like okay well these are all of our friends if we show up in a limo acting like big shots no one's going to want to hang out with us or someone's going to kick our ass yeah seriously That's funny. Yeah, it's yeah. This idea of being aware of your spot, but also being acutely aware of your previous spot. You know. Yeah, and it makes me wonder. Like, we've talked about a little bit about like growing up and learning about music in the age of before the internet. You Mm -hmm. know, or just before the internet. It makes me wonder. Like, are people famous like that anymore? Like, I know they're still famous people. I wonder. Like, if the age of you weren't famous and now you are, you know, the whole Kurt Cobain, like you were selling pot on the side of the road, and then four weeks later, you're the biggest thing in the whole world. I feel like that's not how it works anymore, from what I understand. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there definitely is like a you had no scrutiny and now you have all the scrutiny side of things. But I almost feel like it's been sped up and heightened to the point where, you know, it's a quicker flare. And then it's gone because I suppose the media cycle and or even just like someone going viral. And unless you have the staying power to stay in the limelight, you turn up and you go away. I mean, I made a joke about that last week when I was recording an episode where we can make a reference to the egg that gets big when you put it in vinegar and maple syrup. And knowing that it is extremely topical for like this two week period. Right. And it will be gone. It'll be gone until three years from now when someone writes a listicle saying, hey, remember that that craft project thing that everyone was obsessed with? Like the dress, you know, is it white or black or gold or blue? Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of idea of being very much in the limelight and everyone is talking about you and then having them move on. I mean, God forbid we reference an Eagles song on this podcast, but there's a reason that whole New Kid in Town song was a thing. Good point. It's a fucking depressing song, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it so is. Oh, I hate that song. I know one thing that for sure because of, I don't know if it's because of the internet, but currently doesn't exist that used to exist was the idea of selling out. That's just not oh, a yes. thing anymore. I remember that was a huge concern when I was coming up. And now it's like, that's just not a, th- it's just not a thing anymore, which I'm not, I'm not complaining. I think it's fine. Yeah. But like, it's so weird that that idea was so important for 20 years and now it's not important at all. Like I, there are hardcore bands that I can think of that released a new record and it sounds like Stone Temple Pilots and people will be like, oh, this sucks. I don't like it. But nobody will be like, oh, they sold out. They changed their sound. Like, it's just not a thing that exists anymore. (laughs) And honestly, it's one of those things where I honestly wonder if it ever existed, except for in the minds of the people who talked about it. You know, it was a construct for sure. (laughs) 
up there with this revered authenticity is this idea that it's the starving artist thing. It's, you know, if you're being successful with your music, you are therefore not doing it because you've got something inside of you. Instead, no, you're doing it because you're getting paid. Right. Ah, it's, even just saying that, like, I'm a, like, my shoulders went up a little bit and I'm, I kind of rejected it just a touch, you know? Yeah, 100%. I think the internet just makes it more, like, transparent. You know, if somebody accuses you of selling out, you can just reference your tweet from before you were famous and you're exactly the same person. You can literally prove you're exactly the same person that you were. Yeah, and I also think that it's a long-running joke where, you know, you start off and you write songs about the stuff you needed to write songs about. And then once you're successful, eventually you get to the point where you're writing a song about how hard it is to write a song uh-huh. or writing a song about touring as a band, yeah. you know? That makes a, that's a good point. Because you're writing your experience. And so your experience has changed, and so your music changed, which is perfectly logical, but is seemed to be a difficult pill to swallow for your, some audiences. Yeah, that's very true. That's why you got to go narrative from Jump Street, like the Mountain Goats or something, like where it's just yeah, everything has simultaneously been intensely personal, but also you know like maybe a made up story somewhere in between, so that you mm-hmm. never run out of things to to write about. Yeah, and do you listen to? I only listen to the Mountain Goats, the podcast. I do, I do. It's one extremely good, and B extremely interesting, and. God, John's lived a life, hasn't he? Boy, yeah. It makes me wonder if my lifelong commitment to Straight Edge hasn't totally ruined my ability to write anything. Maybe that's why I can't. <laughs> I should. If I was a, if I'd have been a junkie for a couple of years, it would have really oh. kickstarted things. <laughs> yeah, because it's one of those situations. For a while, I was only tangential to the Mountain Goats. One of my best friends, Ginger, is a massive, massive fan. And they would always put me on to more stuff by the Mountain Goats. And I actually had them on this show to talk about the Mountain Goats. And then I started listening to that podcast and I went, oh, I don't know anything about the Mountain Goats. Yeah, that is a band that I was constantly being told to listen to. And so I never listened to him because I'm like, don't tell me what to like. And then, <laughs> that feeling. But also people would tell me, oh, yeah, you'd love the Mountain Goats. You'd love the Mountain Goats. Nobody thought to just stop and say, hey, Matt, did you know there's a band that wrote like a real sad bastard record about being a pro wrestler because that's (laughs) pretty much the center of my venn diagram sad music sad like indie rock music and pro wrestling nobody thought to do that if they had done that i would have started listening sooner but in the subsequent two years that i have started listening to the mountain goats it's reached a real fever pitch for me of fandom they are very good and yeah john darnell it's funny when i describe him to people who don't know about them it's particularly a joke with the people that i work with they're like is he your imaginary friend it sounds like you made him (laughs) up because it sounds like you're it's like yeah he's like really likes death metal but he writes this really sad like you know sort of americana tunes and he loves dungeons and dragons but he's also like recently a pretty strong christian and people are just like this is not a real this is like your (laughs) matrix projection of yourself this is not actually you no it's a real person and it's funny because You know, we were talking about accusations of selling out and authenticity and a lot of this, like you mentioned right at the start, a lot of the stuff that we've just been talking about can also apply to pro wrestling, right? Mm -hmm. To hear like someone with the same kind of grounding that you were talking about suddenly also point out, yeah, I've been watching pro wrestling since I was six years old and it means an incredible lot to me and I'm going to write a whole album about it. It's something where, I mean, there's a a meme going around where it's, you know, same hat, two businessmen walk up to each other, they point to each other and they go, same hat. And they shake hands. Right. Say, same yeah, hat. Yeah. And they walk off. Same hat. And it's like, yeah, yeah, man. Same hat. Totally. Yeah. It's So Beat the Champ, the record that we're talking about, is like, in my mind, and this is skewed because I'm a pro wrestling person, is the perfect Mountain Goats record because it's a record about being a pro wrestler. 
but it's also a record about liking pro wrestling, but it's also a record very specifically about John Darnielle's relationship with his stepdad, who was a referee for pro wrestling and how he, you know, they had this terrible, you know, vis-a-vis the sunset tree, had this really bad, you know, experience with, with his stepdad. So it's like simultaneously about these three things. And that's exactly what you want in a mountain goats record. Like that's their thing. It's like, it's about all these things. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like you can, you dig a little bit into the, the record itself and it's also not an entirely sad record. There are some bops on that record. Oh, for sure. Choked Out is a great song. Mm-hmm. And like really upbeat and fun to kind of bop along to on the bus or whatever. And then you'll listen to Animal Mask and find out that's about the birth of his son. And suddenly it gets real dusty on that bus where you are. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden something's in your eye. Yeah. Go figure. Oh, man. Great record. We could definitely talk about the Mountain Goats. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting ready to go see them for the second time in four weeks <laughs> next week. <laughs> Oh, I love it. And see, there is something, and again, we've turned down this avenue, I guess we're talking about the Mountain Goats now, but there <laughs> is something about the fact that, for example, the Mountain Goats have some songs that they only play live, right. and that the only recordings of those songs are someone who stuck up a tape recorder at the front of the pit and just recorded him playing, like, is it called You Were Cool? Mm-hmm. Like that one, that's one of my favorites, and the only recording I've ever heard of it was, again, someone sticking up a tape recorder and this very lo-fi, flat-sounding recording of this incredibly simple but just amazing and powerful song that i like so much you know yeah yep man they're mythic they are amazing (laughs) man i so tell me i want to know i'm going to interview you tell me about this wrestling promotion that you always go to oh pwa so i discovered pwa because my friends and i my friend first off my friend alex and then my other friends re and julia and celine and a few others initially i knew alex was a wrestling fan and i've been a wrestling fan for ages and ages but i've not really had the group around me that i could talk to about it not since i was like 21 what i found was that alex who was a friend of mine who i had worked with but we weren't really friends at the time and we became friends later through mutual other folks was a wrestling fan too and he was watching a lot of newer stuff and i was able to bring a little bit of my knowledge into it and we could be the incredibly annoying people at a party who would just like lock horns in a corner and talk wrestling for a freaking hour as everyone else slowly moved away and eventually it was once you come over to my house and i'll cook something and we can watch some wrestling and then that group got bigger And eventually it was, oh, I was hosting like four hour afternoons at my house where I would, you know, cook and make cocktails and watch wrestling. And we would invite people to that. And eventually it was like, well, look, WWE Live is coming up. They do the once a year show in Australia. Why don't we all go? And we did. And we had a great time. And it was Alex who said, hey, House of Hardcore is coming in the next couple of months. You know, Tommy Dreamer's putting out a show. The Young Bucks will be there. And I looked at the list and I went, Colt Cabana's going to be there. I'm definitely going. That's so cool. (laughs) And so... We went and had a great time during the show, a three-way dance with a couple of local guys. And there was one guy who I still don't know. And then there was Jack Bonza and there was Robbie Eagles. And it was amazing. Like it was this like really fast-paced match. And Robbie, who was a sort of a smaller guy, very flippy, very fast, just impressed all of us. Like we didn't even properly know his name. We just remembered him as that flippy guy who wore the two bandanas. And on the way out, very smartly, people from PWA were handing out flyers as everyone came out of the House of Hardcore show says, oh, hey, in two months time, Robbie Eagles, that guy you just saw, he's going to be taking on Will Ospreay. You should come down to the RSL and see it. Nice. That was enough to get us in the door. And once we were in the door, it was just all open for us because PWA is a great federation. I've been going to their shows regularly for 
more than two years now. And what I like about it is you've been to local wrestling shows. You know the crowd can suck, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, PWA tends towards more folks like me. At least that's the way I think. Towards me and my friends. They're a very inclusive crowd. There's a zero tolerance for any kind of sexism or homophobia or anything like that. People are regularly booted from the show for being jerks. Nice. It's that good Chikara vibe. Right. But also, they are not just a... They're not a Ring of Honor promotion where everything is serious wrestling. There's a ton of comedy. There's a ton of different types of matches. You know, they're great women's matches. There's really the level of wrestling is some of the best I've ever seen to the point where I haven't gone to the WWE live show for the past couple of years. It's just, mm. it, it's a, it's a, and actually cycling this back to talking about punk stuff. There is a different vibe to being in a stadium in the first balcony and looking down on a show that you can just see to being front row or fourth row to something that is happening right in front of you that can reach out and touch you, you know? Oh yeah, a thousand percent. So when I go when I go down to visit my parents who still live in Florida, I always try to do like a mini NXT tour because the thing that a lot of people don't realize is in Florida it's like the holy land of wrestling. All the wrestlers live down there. You know, NXT's in Orlando and you can just go to like the local I, I saw a full NXT show with Michael Cole and I'm sorry, Michael Cole. He was not there, thankfully. Adam Cole. Bebe. So Adam Cole and Johnny Gargano and the whole shebang in like a high school basketball court. (laughs) And I saw Insanity wrestle against heavy machinery in a moose lodge hall in St. Augustine. It's great. Like indie shows, smaller shows are fantastic. I wish that in Virginia there was something like like what you've got there because it's it's all yeah it's either you know uh, arena or bust around here unfortunately if there was a scene here where i could go see indie shows you know within 45 minutes that would be my whole thing you know that would be my new that punk rock vibe of it that like really you're really getting sweated on like when dudes take it outside it's like stage diving. Like you got, <laughs> you could easily get a, a leg to the face as they work the barrier. My friend Frances, her first PWA show caught a chair to the face. Oh. And it's her like point of pride now. People still remember her from that show. And thing is, because Frances, you remember Frances, because Frances has like bright turquoise glasses and like curly hair, the sweet, sweet part to the side and earrings of her own face. Mm-hmm. You can pick her out of a crowd. What happened is we were there. And Jonah Rock, who is starting in NXT this year, is going to be Bronson Reed in NXT. And he's this massive Samoan guy who is also an incredible wrestler. And they've given him a shark vest, which has made me very happy, like with a shark fin on the back and everything. (laughs) That's awesome. But he was fighting Caveman Ugg, who is exactly what he sounds like. He is an unfrozen caveman wrestler. So good. At one point, Ugg hit Jonah with a chair and it bounced off Jonah's head and flew into the first row. And I heard it, like Francis was sitting to my left, and I heard it ding off her head. Ding! And oh. then go over. And I immediately turned, and I'm like, are you okay? And she turned to me, and her eyes were just like, yeah, I'm okay. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and because they are a good venue and a good crew, they immediately came over to her and had her checked out and made sure she was okay and gave her a free t-shirt for being a trooper. Man, is there any, that just, ugh, that's so good. Is there anything better than that first, you know, that just, that, so that story brought back very strong nostalgic feelings for me. Cause that, 
is that first moment with anything that's like that's intense and that's and that's sort of DIY where mm-hmm. it's the first time you're at a hardcore show and somebody kicks you right in the face, you know, and it's like I can remember <laughs> somebody kicked me somebody kicked me in the, I had to start work the next day at a Walden books, so not Borders, mm-hmm. but Walden. And somebody kicked me in the face at a hardcore show and left like a waffle shaped bruise <laughs> on my face. And I had to explain that to my manager the next day, but it's just that feeling of like getting hit and then realizing that at this moment, I'm about to make a life changing decision. If I go, oh, this sucks. Why did that person hit me and walk out? I'm going to be a totally different person than if my reaction is that was rad. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's same thing. Like she made a decision at that moment and she is who she is today because she decided no way that was fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Watching... And this is, I suppose this is kind of my whole thing, is having the joy of being the one to introduce someone to something great and watch them. Like, because Frances especially is very much a, a gateway friend in that she will bring people from her work, people she knows from other things, and just be like, you're coming to wrestling, it's going to be fun. And they're like, yeah. eh, really? And she's like, no, trust me, it's going to be fun. Watching, like, sometimes people cycle through and they don't come back. Others just, like, sit there with their eyes, like, super wide, being like, I can't believe this is happening. Some have ironic detachment, and that's cool for them, but not really for me. But being able to be part of the group that brings someone to this thing and is part of the of encouraging them to do it, I mean, that's kind of my whole vibe with this show as well. I mean, part of it is, yeah, we all remember the same things, but part of it is also, well, if you don't, well, why don't I tell you about it and you can decide whether you want to keep going. And if you do, isn't that great? Now we get to do this thing together. So good. And actually, again, coming back to kind of punk stuff, like there is in some sectors of the scene, I guess, you get a bit of that kind of gatekeepy, oh, you can't sit with us. You know, you're not mm-hmm. authentic enough kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in the shows that I would go to, there was always, oh, hey, man, I don't recognize you. You want to come and sit over with us? Yeah. You know, that kind of taking in of people. And that has always kind of struck a chord. It's the good kind of subculture stuff, you know? Yeah, we had a little bit of gatekeepery stuff where I grew up. But it was mostly because skate and surf culture is a big deal when you live in a beach town. That culture can also sort of just be, we call them beach jocks. They're just like, they're exactly the kind of toxic masculinity, homophobia, and, you know, misogyny that you get in the locker room, but they surf, but they tend to, because of surf videos, having punk music gravitate toward the sound of punk music. So they're only there because it sounds a certain way. So there was a little bit of gatekeepery, like, Hey, what are you doing here? You know, when you first started, unless you clearly, like if you had a physical disability or you were like, I don't know, overweight or something where it was clear that you weren't like a bro. Um, or if you're a woman, like, you know, you were going to get treated better but if you were just sort of a normal not normal that's a terrible word if you were just sort of like a baseline you know dude that could be there for the wrong reasons you definitely got side-eyed a little bit but i think that was a little more like bouncery you know like scene security than it was like oh you're not allowed to like this thing i find that in small scenes that's where it's always the best once you get into like bigger older scenes that have been around since the 70s and 80s when punk started like you get into a new york or a richmond can be that way a little bit chicago where the scene is big and it's not going anywhere people tend to be a little more like i don't know finicky about who hangs out but yeah man if you're in a 
an inclusive punk scene somewhere small, especially it's the best feeling in the world of just like, if you found this show, you're probably cool. You know, like you're, you're, <laughs> we're probably going to get along just by merit of the fact that you found out this was happening. Yeah. Cause then if you've got that, then what you get is someone else to talk about that thing you like. Right. You know, yeah. that's nothing but a net positive. Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say, I think that's a nice kind of spot to end it on. So Matt, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Yeah, so they can still follow Smark of the Beast on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash smarkpodcast. Me and my co-host, Matt Wilson, still try to tweet about wrestling there. And we will be recording again soon. If you're a listener of this podcast and also of that podcast, sorry that we haven't been around this summer. It's been crazy. But we're coming back for SummerSlam, so keep a lookout for that. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am twitter.com slash mattmoment. That's M-A-T-T-M-O-M-E-N-T. It's like been my internet handle for a long time, so Instagram, mattmoment, Facebook, mattmoment. And you can find me at those places. I am in my first hardcore band in about 10 years in the works right now, and we'll be playing our first show and releasing something here uh, in the fall. So keep an eye out for that. And I think that's pretty much it. All right, great. So thank you so much for coming on, Matt. This has been a blast. And I'm going to go and look up some more wrestling stuff. Because this always happens. We talk about wrestling, and I just want to look up more wrestling stuff. This always happens. <laughs> it's so good. So good. Well, thanks for having me on, Lucas. I really appreciate it, man. Like a dog down on the cards, square in the spotlight, sweating real hard. All soaked in blood like a newborn babe, sharp thing hidden in my hand, shaped like an astrolabe. Gonna stick you in the eye with a foreign object. Gonna poke you in the eye with a foreign object. Thank you very much to Matt Fisher for his time. Now, as Matt is proudly straight edge, as was the topic of this episode, I'll be making a mocktail this week. And so I present the foreign object. In a glass with a large chunk of ice, combine three ounces of ginger beer, three ounces of cranberry juice, and the juice of half a lime. Stir to combine, and garnish with a sprig of mint. Whip your head around a little, get blood on the front row. Enjoy! The Mather View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathaview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathaview, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram.
If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could make it rain. You could have me escorted to every podcast in a limo. I probably wouldn't take it, though. But it would be nice to have the option. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever podcasting platform you want in the country of your choice and leave us a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you'd like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. I've checked. That's nearly a day of music including this song. It's Welcome to Paradise by Green Day, as heard on the second album I ever bought. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be joined by Joe Thornley, host of Zealot, a podcast about cults, and we're going to talk about M.A.S.H. I mean... In theory, we talked about MASH. You'll, you'll see when I post the episode. Join me, won't you? I'm being stared at by my kids' back manga hat, which is sitting on the edge of the table. <laughs> Aw, little hero. He's so cute. <laughs> He's one of my favorite social media babies. Aw, thanks, man. Yeah, there's a, a lady at my work, because I've had to move desks a few times the last year or so, and, you know, I continually replace the pictures that I put up, and, you know, there's always the real pictures that you, you know, have printed on photo paper or on cardstock mm-hmm. or whatever, and then there's occasionally just some I'll just, you know, grab off my phone and print the office printer and stick them up, and when yeah. I had to move, I went from having a wall behind me to just having a desk, and so I'm like, well, I can't take all these pictures with me. And so I just checked out the ones that were just on printer paper because they're not really nice or anything. As I was doing that, this lady in my office was like, do you mind if I have one of those? And I'm like, no, you know, that's fine. You know, so I gave her one of him when he was about six months old and looked like a potato. And she put it up next to her monitor. She's just like, because she used to come over and talk to me about him. And she's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I like seeing his pictures and stuff. As people are like, will come and like train at her desk and stuff and be like, is that your, is that your son? No, that's Lucas's son. I just like having him around. <laughs> I mean, both of our kids are adorable, but our youngest, Clarabelle, she kind of has that vibe a little bit. Like, everybody wants her to be their kid, grandkid, <laughs> or niece. Yeah. <laughs> just because she looks like... We always say she looks like a Hello Kitty character, given life. <laughs> she is, like, what, like, Japanese fashionistas in, like, the Harajuku district imagine little white girls look like. <laughs> She's like a little doll. <laughs> she has that same effect on people. Oh. That's a good one. Although at the moment here is adjusting because Kimiko's brother, Kenji, and his wife, Kwan, had a new baby about mm. two months ago. She is baby Naomi or baby Mimi, as he calls her, because he can't say it properly. Mm. We're watching to see if this has affected him about the fact that you are not the tiniest and the cutest anymore. <laughs> you know, your Nana has another baby to hold who's smaller than you. But so far, he's taken it in stride and just thinks of her as like a sidekick. And so when she's over at the grandparents' house, we'll want to spend the whole time like laying down and like imitating her poses and being like, look, I'm a baby too. And I'm like, (laughs) 
sure you are. You are more than twice her size. But no, I'm happy to do it. And also, yes, you cannot pick her up and squish her like you would a doll or anything. Promise. Yeah. I know you want to, <laughs> but you can't. I have a niece that is younger than Clarabelle and very cute, but also a very large baby. So her and Clarabelle are three or four years apart, but the same size. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. So there's like a little competition, but she almost sees Lula May as like her equal, even though she is considerably younger because they're the same like height. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. There was... uh, I went flashing back to Kimiko's mother's group. There was one particular baby who was the same age as all of them because that's how they paired them up at the hospital. And they just, you know, pick people in your area who have also had a kid at the same time so that, you know, you can have Mm -hmm. someone to talk to and hang out and go for coffee and stuff. And apparently the biggest baby was more than a kilogram heavier than any of the other kids because he was just... He was like a four-kilo baby. And so... And I said, so what's his name? And she said, his name's Leslie. And I said... Wouldn't they just name him Morley? <laughs> she looked at me and she's like, "You can never say that to them." And I'm like, "I understand this. I understand this." However, I did various times go, "How's Morley doing?" Forgetting that this was a name I had assigned to this child, as opposed to this child's actual name. Oh man, yeah, same. We like would hang out after our first one was born, and I hadn't learned all of the nuances of what's appropriate (laughs) we would go hang out with a group of parents that we like took birthing classes with and i would just think it was funny like you know that a baby would look i don't know just silly or like you know i would make things like oh it looks like an ogre (laughs) no (laughs) not because they were ugly but just because they were like lumbering around little grumpy faces and jenny would be like you can't say something like me yeah exactly yeah making a derp face and lumbering around it's not my fault your kid looks like winston churchill come on Uh, I had to learn to be much more sensitive. And also, as in any situation where you're meeting lots of people, I mean, you kind of remember people by traits. I remembered there were two couples, and one of them was, oh, you know, Florence and Billy Awful, mm-hmm. you like, from Glow. Mm-hmm. And it's because he, like, he was kind of a punk-looking guy, and he had, like, you know, tattoos down to the ends of his fingers. And that was how... <laughs> and he was a really nice guy, and we had a great conversation. Yeah. But I didn't get his name, and it's now I've met him, like, six times, and it would be too awkward to go, hey, what's your name? Yeah. Your wife's name is Florence. Your kid's name is Harry. I've just been calling you Billy Awful. Is that all right? Then there's another, which I I don't really have an excuse for because I do know her name. But I know that his name is Scotty and their kid's name is Patterson. And I've been calling her Veronica Mars because she does, in fact, look like Kristen Bell (laughs) and wears a lot of jean jackets. And so I'm just like, that's funny. (laughs) I'm never going to call you Veronica Mars. But in my head, you are Veronica Mars. How are Veronica Mars and Scotty doing? (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's so funny. 